you'd like to turn to John 8, I'll be reading this morning from John 8, 48 to 59. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly. I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This concludes the reading of the word this morning. I have yet to, to meet someone, my friends, who doesn't enjoy a good story. And don't you go raising your hand if you're an exception. Because I'm not sure I'd believe you. Because I've noticed that <clears throat> from, from Little Blue Truck Visits the City, yes, that's a, a delightful kid's book, uh, to the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, to, to Cry the Beloved Country by Alan Patton, another wonderful novel, we're we're drawn to stories from our earliest years. And to those of you smart alecks right now who are thinking, I'm not drawn to stories, I'm drawn to movies. I would simply ask you to consider what makes a good movie. Huh? It's a good story. We all enjoy good stories. But we, we don't just listen to stories for their entertainment value. We, we tell ourselves stories to, to make sense of our life and the world around us. We, we use stories to construct our identity and our, and our purpose. And in that sense, they're exceptionally powerful. Okay, and they, they influence you and me a whole lot more than we realize. So, so some might say, here's a story, I'm a gifted leader. 
My mission is to climb as high as possible, as fast as possible in the corporate world so that I can reach my full potential. That's a story. Some might say I'm a good mom. Through a Joanna Gaines home and well-behaved kids, (laughs) I will overcome mediocrity and settle for, for nothing less than excellence on every side. Some might say, I have a beautiful body. Meaning is found in perfecting my physical appearance and and holding back the effects of aging, no matter the cost. Some might say, I'm a mistreated sibling. My goal every day of my life is to prove that I'm faster and smarter and stronger than everybody else in my family and earn the respect I deserve. That's a story. You know, but some, some might even say, I'm, I'm a worthless victim of abuse. That's a story. Nobody loves me. I just get in the way. The world would be better off without me. It's a story. You realize that? What, what kind of story have you been telling yourself this week? We, we all locate ourselves in a narrative, a story of some kind, to make sense of the world and our place in it. And that, that raises a really important question, okay? Is the story you've embraced true or not? Just because you've embraced it or telling yourself it, that doesn't mean it's true. It could be a fiction you created. It could be a fiction someone else imposed upon you. Or or does the story you've embraced, does it reflect the way things actually are? This might be new for some of you, but, but Christianity is immeasurably more than a set of moral behaviors. Immeasurably more. Okay, it's, it's a story. And it's a story that makes really good sense of the world in which we live. And here's the best part of this story. It's true. You know, people will say, well, the Bible was written thousands of years ago by all sorts of different folks. And so it's just kind of a a jumble in search of an editor. (laughs) Well, it was written by many people over thousands of years, but the accounts it contains, the historical accounts in God's word are not, they're not disconnected. It's not a jumble. There's a unity to them because they're all part of one big story written by one divine author. And that's a story, friend, in which people like us discover our true identity and purpose. And I say all that because the last part of John 8, the verses we just read, gives us the key to grasping the, the meaning of the whole story. So listen very carefully. I'll tell you what it is. The the story of your life and the world in which you live 
is not ultimately about you. I hope you heard that. Because we forget that perpetually. <laughs> that this, the story of your life and the story of the world in which you live isn't ultimately about you. It's about God. The, the God who created us and knows us and, and died for us and has, has purpose from eternity past to accomplish something through us that is infinitely greater than us. The Apostle Paul puts it this way, Colossians 1.15 He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything, he might be preeminent. Amen. Here's what that means in a sentence. You don't exist for your own sake. You might think you do, but but you don't exist for your own sake. And and the cosmos in which you find yourself did not come to exist by an accident. Okay, your story, my story, your your kid's story, your family's story, this church's story, America's story, the entire world in which we live, it's all about displaying and exalting the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Why? Why? Oh, because it just happens to be that way. Oh, well, wish it could have been about me. No, why? Why is it all about Jesus? Because Jesus is infinitely worthy of our praise as the eternal son of God. That's why it's about Jesus and not about you. You're not infinitely worthy of praise. You are not the eternal son of God, but Jesus is, and so it's all about him. But that didn't stop Notice John 8 screams this. That didn't stop opposition to Jesus from rising all throughout his public ministry. And it reaches a new level of intensity toward the end of chapter 8 because Jesus just keeps asserting the truth of his divine identity. He will not stop. People start getting angry. And, and in response, Jesus doesn't back down. He doesn't play you in peacekeeper. He doubles down. And he concludes here, this entire chapter, with, with a pointed critique of why the Jews refuse to acknowledge the truth of his words. Here's your problem, guys. Here's the problem. Look at verse 43. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. I've said this before, but their failure to believe what Jesus said was true about himself was not due to a lack of persuasive evidence. It wasn't an evidence problem, not remotely. They didn't believe Jesus because they didn't want to believe Jesus. That's why. They didn't like what Jesus had to say. You ever not like what someone has to say? 
And so they didn't accept his words. They refused to do so. To, to which Jesus said, you guys think you're good with God. You, you think you're part of God's covenant people, but your attitude toward me reveals you're nothing of the sort. Okay, at the deepest levels of your heart, you're opposed to God because you want to be God. And because I am of God, you're opposed to me. And that, look at verse 48, is where the gloves come off. They've had it. Because Jesus just said, you're not a Christian. And the veneer, because that's what it is, of, of respectable dialogue, if they were even trying to maintain that, it's just shattered. It just, it just descends into unchecked contempt. You know what, Jesus? You're a demon-possessed Samaritan. I won't translate in modern English in public what that really felt like and meant. But I'll let you choose a four-letter word. You're a demon-possessed Samaritan. You're, you're a religious heretic taking cues from the devil himself. You, you just see how much our, our own desire to be God completely messes up our ability to even perceive the truth. <laughs> Who's standing in front of them? God. And they look at him and say, you're a demon. It's frightening. Notice how Jesus responds. He reminds them who he is. Look at verse 49. The obedient son honors the father. He reminds them who they are, those who dishonor the son, and by extension, the father who sent him. But, but Jesus doesn't linger there on the demon stuff. He, he quickly directs their attention to a big story. A, a story that, that reveals his identity and purpose. And if we have ears to hear, a story that reveals our own identity and purpose so let's linger on this story and then we'll end with our response to it, okay? It's a two-point sermon. Point one's gonna be almost the entire message. All right, so don't get worried. First, the story. What's this big story to which Jesus directs our attention? Here's the story. It's the Father's mission to glorify the Son. The story is that the father is on a mission to glorify the son. Look at, look at verse 49. Let lest Jesus' rebuttal in this verse be misunderstood. He, he wants the Jews to know that, that he's not elevating himself over God or making much of himself apart from God. Why is that important? Because it's very important that they and we know he's not the latest in a very long line of human religious figures speaking to gain a public following. 
or boost their social media numbers. He's not living for the approval of men and he has no need for the Jews to like or accept him so he can feel better about himself. You ever felt that? He doesn't, right? Rather, as the obedient son, what, what does he do? He completely entrusted himself to his heavenly father. Okay, the one to whom all of us are accountable. Look at verse 50. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. The, the humility and the freedom in Jesus' words there is just remarkable. I mean, you, think about your life. Do, do you know, have you tasted or experienced how exhausting it is to spend your waking hours consumed with managing the stock of your own honor and image and reputation and esteem in the eyes of men. I mean, that, that's a crushing burden, friends. Whether you're doing it because you want the kids on your sports team to like you or, or you're doing it because you desperately want your, your boss to like you. It's a crushing burden. And on the back end of every perceived success in that race is another mountain to climb. And in contrast, what did Jesus rest in knowing in verse 50? That, that his father would be faithful to vindicate him. He wasn't worried about his own honor. He, he trusted the father to exalt and honor him in the right way at the right time. And that verse reminds us, brothers and sisters, that there is one verdict and one assessment and one evaluation and one judgment of your life that makes all others pale in comparison. And that is God's judgment of you and God's evaluation of you. He's the judge. He, he is the one with whom you have to do not your spouse or your kids or your coworkers or even your own mind. Paul puts it this way to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 4.3, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Oh, oh, that we could say in all the relational conflicts we encounter throughout the week with the humility and freedom of the son of God himself, it is the Lord who judges me. That, that, that's not a trump card report. Well, one day Jesus is gonna tell you. No. That's humility in action. I don't, I don't need to win this argument because it ultimately doesn't matter what you think of me. What matters is what God thinks of me. But Jesus is doing a lot more here than giving us an example to follow in conflict. Okay? Note the application, but don't get stuck there because he's directing our gaze to the big story. Okay, what's that? <laughs> That the God with whom we have to do is seeking something, okay? He's resolved from eternity past to, to accomplish something. God the Father is passionately committed to magnifying the supremacy of his glory in the person and work of God the Son. 
That's the story, which means your existence isn't an accident. Okay, the, the circumstances of your life are not an accident. There, there's a, a great and glorious purpose that governs all those things, friend. What's that? The Father's on a mission to display the infinite worth and beauty and value of his son, Jesus Christ. That governs everything about you and around you. And because he's a sovereign God, as Kevin mentioned earlier, what's that tell us? That what he is seeking will surely come to pass. I mean, think about all the things you and I seek that don't come to pass. Maybe you got a speeding ticket and you sought for the judge to throw it out. Ah, it didn't happen that time. I mean, we, we seek all kinds of things that don't come to pass. What God the Father seeks always comes to pass. Always. Because he's God. The question, therefore, isn't whether Jesus Christ will be glorified. But will you align your life with that story? Or will you in vain try to swim against the tide? That's the question. A few weeks ago, um, my wife and I got to spend some time in Hawaii before and after a family wedding. And one of the coolest things we saw is a place called Narnia where, where you just have I lost track of how many waterfalls, and they're not like little Shenandoah things. I mean, they're huge. Think, you know, 50, 60 feet tall, and they're all over the place. There has to be at least five or six of them in this little square half mile. And it had been pouring rain before we got there, and the water level was high, and the river's raging in all directions, and at one point, I was sorely tempted to, I really wanted to get on the other side of this river just to see what I could find, because I like exploring like that. But you know, I'm standing there looking at the water, and I even asked one of our my brother-in-law, hey, do you think that would be smart? And he's like, no. <laughs> Duh, okay, I knew that. I just need somebody else to tell me that. Why not? Be because the moment I jumped into that raging water, I mean, it was brown, it was flying, what would have happened? You know, and I might like to think of myself as a strong swimmer. I, I would have been completely carried over that fall. Powerless in that current. You, you could put, you could put an Iron Man winner in that current. No chance. Friends, that's, that's a picture. A very small picture of the futility of living for your own glory instead of the glory of Jesus. You're, you're not going to win. You can't. It won't work in the end. Either you, you willingly submit to him now or, or you're going to be crushed by the weight of his glory on the day he returns. Isaiah 45, 23, by myself I have sworn, for my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return to me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Maybe some of you watched the, the Mandalorian on Disney Plus. Some of you seen that? 
not wholeheartedly just recommending everything I reference, okay? But, but there's a character in the Mandalorian who ends everything he says with, I have spoken. Right, Gabe? And the first time I heard that, I laughed. But you know the next time I heard that? You feel chills. Because there's only one person in the universe who can say that. I have spoken. And it always comes to pass. And it's not the critter in the Mandalorian. It's certainly not you or me. It's the almighty God who says to me, every knee shall bow. You can bet your life on that. Whether, whether through your judgment or your salvation, okay? Jesus Christ is gonna be glorified through your life. So how then should we live? Look at verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. You know, Jesus isn't talking about moral perfection here, okay? Or, or earning deliverance from the judgment that we deserve on account of our sin. He's, he's urging you and me to do what? To embrace the obedience of faith. Okay, to, to keep the word of Jesus, notice that singular, the word of the gospel, by trusting him as the one who, who obeyed in our place, who died in our place, by living in submission to his authority. For it's, it's those and those only who will be saved on the final day. Jesus isn't saying add good works to saving faith. He's reminding us that we express the faith by which we are saved through good works. Because on the day you die, friend, the Lord will not take an inventory of your professed beliefs. He's not gonna hand you one of those Department of Agriculture surveys you get when you get on a plane. Do you have the following? No, no. He will review the record of your life. Did your thoughts and your words and your, your actions did, and your affections, did they reflect the obedience of faith or not? Because only those who keep the word of the gospel, who, who live in faith-fueled submission to King Jesus will be delivered from condemnation on the final day. Living a life characterized by obedience to the word of God isn't about becoming a serious Christian. It's a matter of whether you are a Christian at all. The dividing line between those who know eternal life and eternal death is defined by those who keep the word of Christ and those who don't. And I want to encourage some of you. I was thinking about this this morning. You, there are those of you listening to me, I think, who have grown weary in trying to keep the word of Christ. And you're tired. And you find yourself thinking, but almost scared to even admit, I'm not so sure this is even worth doing anymore. Because nothing good is happening to me. Nothing's changing. I'm not, I'm not getting those things that, that we're waiting for that Kevin mentioned earlier. Lord would encourage you, friend, that 
the horizon of your assessment is far too small. What, what the reason we are faithfully persevering and keeping the word of Christ is not so that we can get a bigger goodie bag in this life, but so, so that on the final day when we all stand before the judgment seat of God, that you will know life on that day. That, you'll ne- that you won't taste death on that day. And not, and not just no death on that day, but no death for all eternity. There, there's an inverse blessing in the word. He will never see death. What does that mean? What's the opposite side of that coin? You will only and forever know life. Don't lose heart. Because eternity is worth it. But the Jews didn't realize Jesus was talking about eternity. Eternal death, eternal life. As always, they were just fixed on this world. All they could see. They thought it was all about physical death, so they mocked him. Verse 52, now we know that you have a demon. Duh. Abraham died as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. What, what gives Jesus? That's nuts. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? Are you saying you mediate a word that is superior to his? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? That that is dripping with irony. Why? Because what's the reality? Jesus wasn't making himself to be anything. Right? He was simply testifying who he actually was. As the eternal son of God, he was in fact... What's the answer to the question? Infinitely greater, right? Than Abraham and the prophets. He was the one to whom they all pointed the, the fulfillment of all the covenant promises of salvation that God had made his covenant people from of old. But Jesus doesn't explicitly say all that. At least not yet. He doesn't even directly answer their mockery. He, he just goes back to the big issue his place in God's big story. Look at verse 54. Back to the story. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. Nothing. Think think about the significance of, of Jesus saying those words as a man. If you invest the deepest affections and the first and the best of your time and your money in satisfying the desires of your flesh, making much of yourself, what what you want, what, what you feel like doing, and that is how you roll throughout your life, then you will have devoted your life, Jesus says, to what is of utterly no consequence whatsoever. Nothing. It doesn't, risk of saying the obvious, it doesn't always feel like that, does it? It it feels like glorifying ourselves, which is just another way of saying doing whatever we feel like doing, is the path of joy. It's the fun way to roll. But Jesus says it's nothing. How could he say that? 
How's that square up with our emotional experience? Here's why he could say that. Because the most educated and wealthy and beautiful among us are nothing compared with the infinite majesty of God. That's why he could say that. What, What does the prophet Isaiah say? He says that all men are like what? Like grass. Flower the field. Here today, gone tomorrow. The glory we seek for ourselves, even when we achieve it, it's nothing in comparison to the glory of God. And as a man, Jesus didn't seek an honor or glory for himself apart from God. Rather, what did he do? He sought and lived for the honor and glory that comes from God. Verse 54, it is my father who glorifies me. Now you gotta be careful with that, okay? The father didn't glorify the son in the sense that he added, like playing Tetris or something, okay, to to the son's intrinsic worth, worth or increased the weight of his majesty. He glorified Jesus, he exalted Jesus by displaying his manifold perfections for all the world to see. How did he do that? Well, we'll find out at the end of John's gospel, but in essence, he did it by sending his son to die on a cross for sinners like you and me. So so that through the glory of the gospel, the entire world could see just how sovereign and loving and wise God really is. Philippians 2.8, and being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What's that mean? That that the hour of his greatest humiliation in the eyes of men, the cross, was the very hour of his exaltation in the sight of God. None of us, friends, are glorious the way Jesus is. Hope I don't have to convince you of that. But we often live that way. When we do our own thing instead of following him. But but none of us are as glorious as Jesus is and, and nor does the Father glorify us in the way he has glorified the Son. Many of us need to remember there's only one Savior of the world and it's not you. And yet, don't miss this Christian. Okay, if, if you've been united to Christ by faith, there is an incredible sense in which the Savior's story is your story. Okay? The, the, the Father's mission, think of it like this. The Father's mission to glorify the Son isn't, it's not you know, a behemoth of some kind, a great big thing of some kind that that's, you know, passes us by like, like a great blue whale swimming past the minnow. Oh, look, there goes God's big story. Hello. <laughs> no, okay? God's big story is a story in which we are caught up as the people of God. 
We're, we're carried along in the, in the wake of that great blue whale, so to speak. Romans 8.30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Or as Paul says in Colossians 3.4, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. As, as believers, if you're a Christian, you have been glorified. Okay, you've been brought, friend, into the kingdom of God with all the privileges of your adoption as sons and daughters of the king. And as a Christian, you are being glorified, that the spirit is at work in you, even now conforming you more and more into the image of the son. And as believers, you know where this is going, one day we will be glorified. Okay, one day we will be completely free from the presence of sin and welcomed into life with Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth with, remember this, bodies that are no longer subject to death and disease and decay. That we will be glorified. We're not gonna need COVID booster shots. But as we wait for that glorification. And it is a weight. With all our hope fixed on our coming king. Christian, like Jesus, you will be misunderstood and maligned and marginalized. You haven't felt that already. But we don't try to vindicate ourselves or spend all our energy convincing other people on social media that we're right. When reviled, we do not revile in return. We what? We entrust ourselves, as Peter says, to him who judges justly. And nor do we spend our life chasing the vanities of this world as if this world is all there is. What do we do? We wait for vindication. We wait for deliverance and the glory that will be ours on the day Jesus returns. And so we as the people of God say with the Savior, it is our Father who glorifies us. Not because we just like believing that, but because what? We know that the end of Jesus' story is also the end of our story. That the father is on a mission. What's the big story? To glorify the son. And in that, and thinking about our response here, there, there lies two things. A sober warning for all who would seek to glorify themselves and a tremendous comfort for all who devote their life to making much of Jesus. Okay, nothing glorifies Jesus more than his saving work on behalf of his people. And the wonder of the gospel, friend, is that the Father's devotion to the glory of the Son has become the measure of his devotion to the salvation of his people. That's the big story, that the Father's on a mission to glorify the Son. How do we respond? Point two, to know the Father is to rejoice in the Son. The Father's on a mission to glorify the Son and to know the Father is for us to rejoice in the sound. The Jews listening to Jesus, just think about the response here. They, they were convinced they knew God, right? 
But Jesus knew the truth, verse 55. You don't know him at all. Why not? Because unlike Jesus, they refused to keep the Father's word. Remember, knowing the Father and obeying his word are two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. You, you certainly can't claim to know the Father if you refuse to honor and submit to the Son who speaks on his behalf. So you can check the church attendance box. You, you can check the, the I believe in God box. You could even put something in the offering basket box. Okay, the Jews did all those things. Countless more, friend. But, but if, you, if you refuse to obey Jesus, okay, wholeheartedly following him, every area of your life, you don't know God at all. That the lack of obedience in your life proves as much. And when the Jews compared Jesus to Abraham and found him wanting, Jesus initially refused to take the bait. He kept running with the bigger story. But eventually, he comes right back to Abraham, verse 56, and to the example of the patriarch's life. Basically, he says, if you're going to keep bringing up your father Abraham, let's remember what made him great in the first place. What made him great? Verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. What's that mean? Well, that Abraham died in faith. He was, he was waiting. He was longing. He was rejoicing in anticipation of the day when Yahweh would bring his descendants into the joy of life in the dwelling place of God. And that was a promise the Lord fulfilled. Thousands of years later, when Jesus was born, John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. But the Jews weren't persuaded because again, it wasn't an evidence problem. It was a problem of the will. And so they said, how, how can you possibly know what Abraham was feeling and thinking and doing when you're not even 50 years old and Abraham lived a couple thousand years ago? Like clearly you're nuts. And Jesus reply, verse 58 is one of the mic drop moments in John's gospel. Because for an entire chapter, Jesus has been asserting the truth of his divine identity. And now it's his turn to take the gloves off. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. If he was claiming to be as old as Abraham was or live when Abraham lived, he would have said what? Before Abraham was, I was too. If he didn't use the past tense, he used the present tense. Why? Because Jesus was describing the reality of his eternal existence, friends. And he was claiming to be the very same God who appeared to Moses at the burning bush. Exodus 3, verse 13, then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. 
And they ask me, what's his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, that I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Jesus in saying I am was not claiming to be the father friend. He was identifying himself with the very divine nature of the father. He was saying that great I am, Yahweh, whom you profess to know and worship, that's me. He, he couldn't have made his, his divine identity any clearer. Listen to me, guys. Believe me. Obey me. Because I'm God. Notice he, Jesus doesn't leave. He's not doing this today either, friend. He doesn't leave any room for us to decide who we want him to be. He, he's not a customizable religious figure like a Starbucks drink, okay? Either we trust and obey him as God, delighting in him by faith as Abraham did, or we functionally join the Jews in assaulting his divine authority through our apathy and our rebellion. That's the choice. And they immediately tried to physically kill him. Convinced he had committed blasphemy. And, and we do the exact same thing in a spiritual sense. Whenever we refuse to submit to Jesus as a rightful king, we, we basically say through our actions, Jesus, I wish you were dead. And I'm gonna act as if you're not the living God by pretending that I am God in this situation. If you know the father, like Abraham, friend, you'll rejoice in the son. But if you don't rejoice in the son, you don't know the father. There are not multiple paths to God. There's only one, the road of obedience to King Jesus. So that means we need to give careful thought to two really important questions. Okay, today and for the rest of this week. First, does the story you've embraced, remember those stories we started with? Does the story you've embraced, the story you're telling yourself, does that story reflect the truth of God's big story? Are, are you living to make much of Jesus or something else? Okay, here's, here's the right story to embrace, all right? Here's the right story. Who are you? You are an image bearer of the living God. What is wrong with you? You deserve judgment on account of your sin against God. What do we do about that? Is there any hope in that? Yes, God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to redeem us from our sins through his life and death and resurrection. And how do we respond to that? By joyfully living for Jesus' sake, not ourselves trusting him to make us right with the Father. That's the story you need to embrace. And by the way, that story is called the gospel. <laughs> That's the first question. What story have you embraced? This is the true story. Second question, if you believe that you've exchanged living for your glory, for Jesus' glory. I, pastor, 
Thank you for sharing. Been there, done that. I'm good. Okay, well, question for you. Does your life confirm that? Are you obeying him accordingly? Or, or do you wake up in the morning and immediately start negotiating? Hedging your bets? Do, do your thoughts, words, and deeds reflect a pattern of obedience to Jesus as the son of God or not? Think of it this way. What does the story of your life that you are writing reflect what you really believe about God's big story? Ask that. Because the question, friend, is not whether Jesus will be glorified through your life, but how? Will he be glorified through your judgment or in your salvation? That the joy of the latter is not a, a roll of the dice when we die. It is, it is the sure reward of choosing to trust and obey King Jesus, the great I am, right now because he lived and died to make you right with God. Remember his promise. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. That, that's the greatest story ever told, friends, that the story of Jesus, the story of our salvation, and, and for the truth of that story, of our matchless Redeemer, I invite you to stand with me now so that we might give him praise. Thank you, Father, that you are on a mission to glorify your son. What good news that is, Lord. It, it tells us that this life and our place in it is not random. It's not an accident. There, there is a purpose. There is meaning. There is something governing and ruling and ordering and directing and channeling and superseding and getting done throughout all the chaos. Because we feel the chaos in us, the chaos around us. I pray, Father, you would help us to clearly see right now where we really stand with you, our place in your story, that you would give us faith like you did your son to in all the conflicts, all the troubles, all the ups and downs of our life, to not forget your big story. Thank you, Jesus, that by faith, your story can become our story. And we praise you for that this morning as the only God, our great Savior and King. Amen.